Are you looking for a quick keto meal that has not just a little bit of protein in it, but also all the electrolytes, vitamins, protein, fat, and more that will meet one-third of your daily needs? Then let me introduce you to Keto Chow. It's a quick and easy-to-mix shake that is designed to give you a complete ketogenic meal. You're able to customize the calories because you decide how much fat to add. Most people mix it with heavy whipping cream, but you can also use avocado oil, coconut cream, a little MCT oil, or any other fat of your choice. Keto Chow is designed specifically for people on the go to replace one to two meals in their day. It comes in eight flavors, including chocolate, vanilla, chocolate peanut butter, cookies and cream, strawberry, mocha, banana, and salted caramel in both individual meal samples as well as a large 21 meal bag. There's also a sample of all the things bundle that has one of each flavor plus a Keto Chow blender bottle to get you started. Head on over to JimmyLovesKetoChow.com and use the coupon code LLVLC to get 10% off of your first order. JimmyLovesKetoChow.com Hey guys, you've been hearing me talk about this company called Real Good Foods and the pizzas and enchiladas that they make available at realgoodfoods.com. Well, guess what? They finally got into Walmart. So you can go to Walmart right now and get their two-time servings large pizzas all across Walmart stores in America. And each of these pizzas has only four grams of carbs per serving. They also have an exclusive flavor only at Walmart bacon and cheese. So check out the store locator at realgoodfoods.com to find a store near you and get your Real Good Foods pizzas from Walmart today. Go support this ketogenic company, Real Good Foods. Coming up in episode 1385, Dr. Rangan Chatterjee. Connecting and educating and making the world a more informed and healthier place. You're listening to the Live in La Vida Low Carb Show with Jimmy Moore. You've helped change so many lives and give us all the courage to take on the rest of the world. This is the longest running health podcast on the air today. You've done so much to spread the word about how diet matters. Over 1,000 episodes strong and counting. The amount of lives that you've changed at this point is incalculable. And now, here's our host and international best-selling author you're like the LL Cool J of podcasting Jimmy Moore hey, hey guys we're back here on the Living Levita Low Carb Show with Jimmy Moore and today I'm very privileged to have on the podcast a gentleman by the name of Dr. Rangan Chatterjee he's a medical doctor with two decades nearly of experience seeing patients he is double board certified in internal medicine and family medicine has an honors degree in immune immuno- how's that word Immunology is too early. Immunology, yeah. Say hard words. What was that? Yeah, immunology. Immunology. I had it right. (laughs) He, uh, if you're over in the UK, you probably have seen him on television all over the media because he starred uh, stars in the BBC One TV show Doctor in the House, which has aired all over the world. In in fact, in over seventy countries, he uses a functional and lifestyle medicine approach to reverse chronic disease. And he just released his brand new, very first book, 
Uh, he's a book virgin now, uh, no longer. Released in the UK earlier this year, became an instant Sunday Times bestseller, reached the number one slot out of all books on Amazon. Is that Amazon UK? Amazon UK, yeah. Yeah. So it became one of the most successful health books released in the past five years. And now he's bringing it to the US, you guys. And it's not called The Four Pillar Plan. It's actually called How to Make Disease Disappear. And I think we all, Rangan, want that in our lives. What's up, Rangan? Hey, Jimmy. It's such a pleasure for me to be on your show. Hey, man. And you've never been on here. What's funny is I met you in 2015 when we were both on a panel together you're this gigantically tall guy. I'm tall, but you're pretty tall. <laughs> I'm sitting next to you, and you were the nicest human being uh, to be around and very knowledgeable about nutritional health at that conference. Uh, it was just an honor to meet you. And now, look, you've you've exploded. I need your autograph now, man. <laughs> hey, Jimmy, I remember our meeting really, really well, and it was it was such a pleasure for me to be on that panel with you and just you know share the knowledge that we both picked up over a number of years with you know, with the public who, you know, it's the same in the US, the same in the UK, people are hungry for information on how they can take control of their health because unfortunately, a lot of people are sick out there. Yes. And one thing that struck me about you too, was how measured you are. It's like, I can see the wheels turning. I smell the bacon because you're thinking so hard, just trying to make sure that you're disseminating really good information. And as a medical doctor, I know you have to do that, but I, I sincerely appreciate that because then what comes out of the mouth, uh, I know is going to be quality information. Yeah, Jimmy. I mean, I, I certainly try to. It's you know, it's hard sometimes because I think we all get quite polarized views depending on which camp we sit in, depending on who we follow on social media. So we often end up hearing the same thing over and over again. And I, I've realized that more and more that we can't make an assumption just because I know something or my social media friends know something that the general public know that information as well. So I'm always trying to remind myself that not everyone has been on this journey with you and some people still need to be reminded of the basics. Yeah. So tell us a little more about yourself, because you've been at this gig for almost 20 years, pretty much the entire 21st century. Tell us what got you interested in medicine. So, you know, Jimmy, I grew up in a medical family. My father was a you know, consultant in GU medicine here in Manchester in the UK, uh, and his family were doctors. So, you know, I very much grew up surrounded by that. So I, it was almost inevitable in some ways that I would end up in medicine. But the funny thing is, is that I don't think I, I don't think I loved my job the first few years because if I if I look back, I'm sure like many people you've had on, on this podcast before, Jimmy. You know, you leave medical school, you think you've been taught all the tools that you need to help your patients, <laughs> and then you know months become years and and you know before you know it you've been practicing for a few years and if you start to reflect i think often we find as medical doctors that we're not helping as many people as we thought we were going to help so you know i started out i started out in hospital medicine um i was training to be a nephrologist so kidney medicine yes and i was working very happily in that field but you know i got this I had this deep sense that we were becoming overly specialized in medicine, um, arguably too specialized in some cases. And I wanted to have that really broad approach and find out how different things in the body are connected. So I took you know, a rather unusual step to move from specialism to becoming a GP or a generalist so I could see everything and see how different parts of the body, how different symptoms um, 
you know, how, how they all interact together. And as I went on that journey, I, I realized one day I sat back at the end of my day and I looked at my patient list and I honestly felt, Jimmy, that I'd only helped about 20% of my patients. Where do you the think the disconnect was? Because I, I hear a lot of doctors talk about this, that they were just so frustrated with everything they were taught just no longer working. And you alluded to this a little bit earlier, uh, that in your early days of practicing medicine, you just felt disillusioned because you thought you were going to get out there and change the world and heal everybody. And it just wasn't happening. So where do you think the disconnect was and how did you wake up? The disconnect is to do with the fact that the health landscape of the USA, the health landscape of the UK has changed. What do I mean by that? I mean that 30, 40 years ago, the bulk of what we were seeing as MDs, as medical doctors, was acute disease. Right? We were seeing problems and diseases and symptoms that responded very well to this, you know, one pill for every ill approach, the pharmaceutical model of care, it kind of worked pretty well for what we used to see. Yeah. And that's what our training is still about as a, as a medical doctor. So that's why the first, probably the first couple of years, it wasn't too bad because I was working in hospital medicine. You know, I was running cardiac arrest teams. I was doing all that stuff that actually, you know, where, where modern medicine actually does do a very, very good job. But I think once you start moving into chronic disease and you see that these problems, whether it's type 2 diabetes, mental health problems, you know, even things like migraines and gut problems, you know, more and more you realize that the tools that we have to fix those problems or to try and fix them are pharmaceutical. And often patients will come back and say they've not worked or they're having bad side effects from the drugs. Yeah. And you can either you know, pretend this is not happening and just, you know, keep doing your job and keep running to time and taking your income and paying your mortgage. Or I genuinely think if you're honest with yourself and you actually reflect, actually, you've got to say that we're not helping that many people. And, you know, you go to medical conferences now and they will tell you that, you know, 50, 60 percent of symptoms that we see are medically unexplained. Wow. And I, I used to take that 10 years ago. I used to take that as you know, as, as, as the law that, oh, you know, these are just medically unexplained. I'm not quite sure what's going on now. But once I've started applying a different approach to these problems, right, I found that a lot, a lot of the time, these vague symptoms that we can't put in a neat box actually go away when you start applying some basic principles to your lifestyle. And so that's really how it turned around for me. Um, you know, w one of the big realizations was that 20% figure, which I think is just shocking, really. You certainly don't go to medical school thinking you're only going to help 20% of your patients. Um, <laughs> Not with your you eyes know. wide open like that, no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, But the, the real turning point for me came about nearly, well, nearly eight years ago now when uh, my son was six months old. So that's my first child. And... Uh, my wife had breastfed him for the first six months and we went on holiday to France and, it, you know, something really scary happened and, and that he got very sick. He nearly died. Um, he, he stopped moving one night. His arms went back into a convulsion and his body just went rigid. And I remember so clearly my wife called out to me. Um, I thought he might be choking on some mucus or some phlegm because he'd, he'd had a slight cold that day. So I turned him over, tried to color his airway, trying to slap his back and nothing was happening. And in a panic, we, we ended up at the, the local ER department 
um, the doctors, nurses were incredibly worried because, you know, at that age, Jimmy, you can have a convulsion right. as a child, but it's called a febrile convulsion. That's when you have a fever associated with it. My son had no fever. So there was no apparent reason as to why this was happening. And he had to be transferred to another bigger hospital. He had two lumbar punctures. We were in a mad panic over what was going on. We were incredibly scared. And then here's the crux. A few hours later, the the doctor, the French doctor came back and said that, you know, he's got no, he's, he's got a very low level of calcium in his body. And mm. um, and so to put that in perspective, the, the calcium level that we look for is 2.2 to 2.6. That's yep. what we consider normal. His calcium level was 0 0.97. Oh. So it was in, not just low, it was super, super low. Yeah, dangerously and low. And so it, dangerously low, that's what causes convulsion. But then again, a few hours later, they said, well, we now know why this has happened. And it's because his levels of uh, vitamin D are dangerously low. Mm. So basically, a six month vitamin, old, a six month old. Wow. You know, a six <laughs> can't get out in the sun just yet as a six month old. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, he was born in the summer here. We took yeah. him out in the sun. Right. So it's not that we didn't stay inside. We were always out and about. But the, the, the thing is, is that a lot of people don't realize is that vitamin D is something we get primarily from the sun. You can get bits from your food, but you primarily get it from the sun. But here's the thing, brown skin or, or darker skin or black skin needs a lot more sun yes. than, than Caucasian skin to, to make the same level of vitamin D. Right. Um, and also living in the north of England where we live, um, you know, we don't get enough sun for enough of the year to make decent levels, particularly for my skin color. So I remember when I came in 2015, it didn't it wasn't sunny one single day. We were there and we were there for three weeks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's it's not it's not the best sometimes. But no. But the, what, how did this get me to change my view on medicine? Well, ultimately, my son nearly died from a preventable vitamin deficiency. So it's fully yes. preventable. Right. And so. I had a lot of guilt associated with that. And I was. Can, can I ask you a question about the vitamins? Because we know that doctors traditionally aren't given very good nutritional health information in their medical training. And I'm assuming it's the same in the UK. What did you learn about the roles of vitamins and minerals? And why wasn't food, like the connection to food with those things, brought into your education if it wasn't? Jimmy, it's a, it's a fantastic point. It's, you know, it's exactly the same here. There's been a lot of press recently that I've been involved with to sort of raise this, this issue here in the UK as to why doctors do not know more about nutrition and lifestyle than they currently do. And so, you know, you're absolutely right. When this happened to my son, modern medicine fixed him with an intravenous infusion and, you know, and then, you know, here, here you go. He's sorted out. But nobody oh, told me, well, is that what they gave him? They, they gave what, sorry? They gave him uh, uh, vitamin D and calcium. Is that what they did? Yeah. yeah, they gave him an intravenous strip of calcium to bring his calcium back up quickly. And then they gave him some shots of vitamin D. Right. Um, but here's the crux of it is that the vitamin D, everything they did was the acute problem fix. You know, he's no longer, you know, stopped moving. He's no longer got his convulsion. He's good to go now. But nobody sort of helped me understand, well, if he has been low in vitamin D for six months and potentially in the womb as well, mm. you know, vitamin D is a critical nutrient for his bone yes. formation, a critical nutrient for his immune system to develop. Could this be the reason why he had bad eczema? 
all these things. No one was asking me. No one was helping with that. So I figured out I would figure it out myself. And my goal was to get my son back to full health as if this had never, ever happened. Wow. And that's what drove me on. So I would spend three, four hours a day reading about vitamin D, reading about other vitamins and minerals, uh, understanding and learning more about the immune system and the microbiome and how you know, all these various factors can contribute to ill health. And I figured as I was doing this, Jimmy, I was kind of learning things. I thought, well, you know, why don't I know about this? How can I have qualified as a specialist, as a generalist? I've got an immunology degree. How do I not know any of this stuff? This was 10 years into being a doctor, right? This is 10 years into being a doctor. Wow. You know, so yes, I applied all these principles that I learned with my son. He's thriving. He doesn't have eczema. He's doing incredibly well. So I feel that, you know, I've applied a lot of those things with him uh, to get him back to full health. Certainly that's my hope. I applied those principles with me and my wife and, you know, the rest of the, the extended family. Everyone starts to feel better. And then I started applying this with my patients and suddenly I'm getting people better. I'm, I'm understanding what is the root cause of their problem and understanding how you can apply small changes in four key areas of your lifestyle. And often that is all you need to do to start seeing really, really big changes. So, you know, medical education absolutely needs to change. That's something I'm sort of involved with here in the UK. I've created a brand new course called Prescribing Lifestyle Medicine Yes. Uh, with, with a colleague, which ran in January. 200 doctors came to it. It's been accredited by the Royal College of GPs. And, you know, basically teaching doctors, how can you apply these skills? How can you apply these tools? A lot of the tools I talk about in my book has been taught on this course so I can actually teach these guys how do you use the principles of these four pillars of health in your consultation with your patients? And, you know, we're running it again on uh, in a week's time in London. We've got another, I think, nearly 200 doctors coming. So I feel, you know, I'm trying to do my bit to contribute to changing this paradigm so that we can get more people better. Oh, Ring. This is why I love your work, because I think you're one of those troubadours out there that are truly going to take this message forward. Asim Mahalter is another one of your colleagues there in the UK oh. who's really doing fantastic work um, trying to get this message out. I wish we had a few more of you guys over here in America that could be so vocal, but it's 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 so huge here. Um, it's it's hard to kind of penetrate the the health media, so to speak. Yeah, you, you guys, I mean, I think a lot of people I've been sort of watching for years have come from America. So I think it's just that America is such a such a big country, isn't it? And it's so many different voices out there, so many avenues of media from which people can get their information. I think it's incredibly challenging. But, you know, Jimmy, I'm an optimist. I think things are changing. Yeah. I think social media has changed everything because... Agreed. People have free access to information now, you know, and some people complain and say that, you know, it should be regulated. But I think they're missing the point of the Internet. The Internet is, you know, it is that free information that, that's out there. And yes, there's going to be good information. There's going to be bad information. But I think we're in a much better position now than we were 25 years ago when the only way you could get medical information was by going to see your doctor and listening to what they said. You know, so I'd, I'd much rather it this way than that way. Oh, absolutely. In fact, this show would not exist if it wasn't for the Internet. So. Yeah, exactly. And how many people, Jimmy, how many emails over, you know, I, I'm not sure how many years you've been running this show for now. 13. How many years has it been? 
13, right? How many emails or text messages or people have you met around the world who've said, Jimmy, your show has changed my life? I bet you can't even count. Hundreds of thousands. Exactly. And that's presumably why you do what you do, because this really matters. And it's not that complicated for a lot of people, actually. One one thing I'm trying to do more and more, Jimmy, so we all go on our own evolution, right? You know, five, six years ago, I'd be saying certain things, but I've evolved since then. And I've, I've realized actually that, you know, health has actually become incredibly complicated for many people. And what I've tried to do with my work on television, with, you know, what I put out on the internet and, and certainly what's in this book is, you know, I've, I've really, really tried hard to simplify it for people. So they read it and go, yeah, actually, I get that. Yeah, I can do that. And, and one of the, you know, the, the book, which is coming, which just come out uh, in, in the U.S., um, that's been out in the UK for three months now. One of the, one of the best things I'm hearing from people is they're saying, you know, it's so easy to understand that as I'm reading it, I feel like I can make these changes. So they feel inspired to go out there and make some changes to transform the way that they feel. Incremental. Uh, exactly. And, and that's really, you know, you, Jimmy, you've written a number of books. This is the goal when we write these books, right? It's to yeah. see, can we, can we, you know, engage with the, with the reader on, 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 in a way that they feel, yeah, I can do this now, you know, and hopefully give them that confidence and that inspiration. Hey guys, I've got a great new product to tell you about here today that is the first all-in-one keto meal that gets its nutrition from quality real foods. It's called Ample K. Go to amplemeal.com, enter the coupon code MORE15, that's M-O-O-R-E-1-5 at checkout, and you'll get 15% off your first order. Ample K is the first complete keto meal that gives you all the healthy fats in a powdered mix-on-the-go format. It will help you stay in ketosis with just six net carbs for a 400 calorie meal. It is packed with MCTs for enhanced ketone production and 70% of the calories come from fat, which will help you satisfy your hunger, give you energy throughout the day and keep you in ketosis. It also is good for the gut health and they put 40 billion CFU probiotics in every meal. Again, it's called Ample K. Go to amplemeal.com and be sure to to enter the coupon code MORE15 at checkout for 15% off of your first order. Ample K. You know what's really neat, Rangan, is when you have like family members that you've given these books to and they don't show any interest at all, even friends maybe, they don't show any interest at all in doing what you're talking about. And then just suddenly one day, so tell me more about this keto thing. Tell me more about these pillars. Tell me more about how I can make disease disappear. And so their curiosity gets piqued, whether they're whether you realize it or not, they're listening and they know where to go when they're ready to take that message to the next level. Yeah, I think the key there, Jimmy, is when they're ready, right? When they're because ready. Yep. I think we've all probably been in the boat before where we suddenly get, you know, we, we learn some new information. We try it on ourselves. We feel great. We want to tell the people closest to us and the ones we love about it. Say, you've got to do this. You've got to do that. And I think many of us have come up across stumbling blocks when we've tried that <laughs> because, you know what? People don't want to hear it unless You're they're ready. You're that one in the family. <laughs> but not anymore. I was. Five years ago, I was. Not yes. anymore. I don't, I, don't, I don't say anything to anybody who doesn't yes. want to hear it. If you don't want to hear what I've got to say, that is absolutely fine. And that's the same on the internet. (laughs) (laughs) When do they ask you? They ask you when something goes wrong. Yes. Right. When, when they're not feeling good or something happens or a friend of theirs at work, 
But then you get the message. It's like, hey, you know that you know that stuff you've been talking about on TV and on the internet for a while. Can, can yes. we just have a chat about that? Um, Christine had a cousin. Uh, my wife Christine had a cousin uh, who just had a heart attack at 39. And I was one of the first people he reached out to and said, dude, I need some help. And so I connected him with some resources. And yeah, I mean, it, it's sad that people have to get to the point of desperation ringing before they truly take control of their health. That's a common theme, Jimmy. I, I agree it's sad. Um, that's, you know, most most of the, the, the sort of people in this space that I've come across, they've all had a personal reason. Well, pretty much all of them. You know, certainly for me, it was my my, my son's issues. Yep. Um, you know, many, many doctors, are, uh, certainly around the UK I talk to, they've all got these personal stories where something happened to them or something happened to someone close to them. And that just, you know, they, they were forced to look for other answers. So I, I know medical doctors who, you know, would happily prescribe pharmaceuticals a certain way for years. And then they get themselves a condition and they get told, you've got to take this for the rest of your life. And that like, really? What, every day? Mm-hmm. And, and that's when they start to challenge the paradigm and go, well, is there another way? Maybe I'm going to try this and see what happens. And I think that that has been fantastic. You know, that's been needed to get this movement to where it is. But I think, you know, I'd love to get to the position, certainly with medical education, where we don't need to wait for medical doctors to have their own personal crisis before they start practicing a different way. It would be much better if we all got taught that way so we could, you know, you know, we could help more people. And this is not about saying our training isn't good. I think my medical training was brilliant. For what it was, yes. Problems. I just think, as I said, the health landscape has changed and we need a bigger toolbox now. Yeah, and I think that's what drives people like you and me to continue to get the message out there because we're trying to prevent people from having to have that uh, moment in their life. We're trying to prevent moments from happening in their life, which is why I write my books, which is why you wrote How to Make Disease Disappear. By the way, guys, we'll have a link to it in the show notes section at theliveandlowcarbshow.com, the official U.S. release, May 1st, 2018. Go get it. But let's get into those four main areas that you talk about in How to Make Disease Disappear. And obviously, let's start with the one that makes the most sense on a show called Living La Vida Low Carb uh, is nutrition. Um, and you call it eat in the book. Um, so I'm assuming that trying to control blood sugar, uh, insulin, and inflammation is the key, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the, just a sort of broad overview, there are four pillars in this book. And my, my belief now, after nearly 20 years of seeing patients, is that actually small changes in these in all of these areas actually leads to to sustainable and long-term change not just the quick fix which we all are looking for but the, but the sort of changes that can still be there and again jimmy if, if i'd come on your show five years ago i would have probably mostly spoken about food but if we get a chance i'll, I'll explain to you uh, sort of over the course of the next five to minutes why i think food is not everything in a way that i used to think it was but oh i agree with if you. we are talking about food yes yeah, if we're talking about food, first of all, um, you know, I think I think there's a lot of confusion out there over what constitutes a, a healthy diet. And I've what I've tried to do with this book, actually, Jimmy, is a make it accessible, make it simple, but also then make it relevant for everybody. I know that's quite a big challenge, but I I wanted a health book where 
you know, no matter what your belief system is around food, no matter whether you choose to be a vegetarian or a meat eater, I wanted the the principles of this book to apply to you, you know, and, and I wanted the principles to be universal. And because there's, there's many great books out there already on specific types of eating. So I wanted to see, can I bring people together a little bit rather than divide? And, you know, a big feature of my book is, uh, in terms of food, is talking about unprocess your diet. One of the chapters is called Unprocess Your Diet. And it's about this whole idea that it's minimally processed food that tends to be associated with the better health outcomes. One of the reasons I think that the low-carb approach works so well in the West is that the bulk of the processed junk food that we have in, in the Western environment, certainly here in the in the UK and the US, I think is processed, highly, highly processed carbs. Yes. So I think when people are cutting the carbs, actually they're, they're cutting the bulk of that processed junk out of their diets. And I think that has positive effects on your gut microbiome, has positive effects on your immune system. It helps to reduce inflammation. And I think that's one of the reasons why you can have like let's say in the in Okinawa, the blue zone of um, in Japan, where people have high rates of longevity, they you know they live past 100 with very low rates of degenerative disease, low rates of type two diabetes. And I've I've wondered over the past years how is it that they can have an 80% carb diet, yet still not have these problems? And I think there's a couple of reasons why. I think yes, most of their food is unprocessed, but I think the other thing that we forget about is that. You know, when we look at all the other pillars with them, that society is very well slept. They have low levels of stress. They're physically active every day, right? So they're ticking, you know, I, I talk about thresholds a lot in this book. So I say that we've all got a, a threshold, right? We, we, let's say we're born in perfect health, right? Down at the bottom here, right? And, and you can deal with multiple insults until you cross your threshold. So that could be, you know, a poor diet for the bulk of your life. It could be the fact that you've always survived on four hours sleep. It could be the fact that you, you know, you lost your job last year and you you hate the current job that you're in. It could be that you were bullied. You know, it could be a relationship breaker, but all these things mount up. Then suddenly what happens is that you cross your threshold. And when you cross your threshold, that's when you get sick. And I think that actually we can start bringing people back down under their thresholds, not by just looking at, at the last thing that went wrong. For example, a lot of people say, you know, I, I lost my job, got really, really stressed or some, you know, my girlfriend dumped me and then I got sick. And I do think that's the tr that's the trigger, but that's not the ultimate cause. I think things have often been going wrong for a number of years before you get to that threshold point. So when I look at Okinawa, I see a whole food diet that although it's high in carbs, a lot of them are what we call uh, cellular carbs. So things like sweet potatoes, which actually are very nourishing for the gut microbiome. So I think they seem to get away with it there. Whereas I, I make the case in the book that could it be that in the West, where we are underslept, where we are overstressed, where we're not moving, could it be in this environment that the low carb approach seems to work so well? Hmm. I've never even thought about that aspect of it. I, I have heard other people talk about different parts of the world uh, needing or having a more 
tolerance to carbohydrates, for example, because of kind of ancestral nutrition of their of their ancestors. But I, I hadn't heard that argument. That's a good one. I like that ringing. Jimmy, hey, as I was writing the book, I was trying to I was trying to figure out why this could be. And I did a lot of research. Into it. And this is look, I'm not saying I've got all the answers, right? I'm always learning. I'm always learning. If I wrote the book in another three or four years time, it'd probably be a different book, right? Because you're always <laughs> learning new things. But I think that's a great approach for people to, uh, you know, just, just, to, just to take that rounded approach. That is something I think is a, certainly from what I've seen, it's a little bit missing out there because I think, you know, let's, I'm sure a lot of your listeners on this show have either had problems with type 2 diabetes or, right. or you know, or Insulin still resistance. do. Yeah, do have those problems or other conditions related to insulin resistance. What, what a lot of people, you know, are not talking about is the fact that if you are moderately sleep deprived for a week, you know, some people will have the same blood sugar levels as a pre-diabetic. Oh yeah. I i.e. sleep loss drives insulin resistance. Can you explain as well. that how that works? Oh, we're learning all the time, right, in terms of how that works. But you know, one way that sleep loss, but also stress. In fact, it's probably easier to start with stress and explain Well, I was going it, to stress next because I think this is the biggie nobody's talking about on a grand scale, Rangan. And so I'm glad you put it as part of your book. He calls it relax in the book. I call it, I call it relax. I try to, I try to use positive language where possible <laughs> to, to encourage people to feel good as opposed to stress. I try to say, hey, it's all about getting more relaxation in. And I, I got a ton of actual simple tips that, you know, I know work because my patients have told me that they work rather than, you know, and that's that's the, the other thing which is really there throughout the book. It's it's not just what you see in the research papers, right? That's important. But this is real life. What actually works when you ask people to make changes, when they come back and say, I found this easy, found this hard. This is full of like real, simple, practical tips that I've learned from my patients, you know, so real people with real lives are feeding back to me what they find that they can do. But let's think about stress, for example, for a minute. Now, mm -hmm. stress in the short term is a good thing, right? That's, it makes us, it turns us into the best version of ourselves. So if we look on an, you know, th through an evolutionary lens and we look at stress, you know, our stress response is pretty much designed around escaping from animals, fighting or fighting, right? So we're being attacked by a lion. In that moment, we need our stress response to turn us into that best person that we can. So our cortisol levels go up, which is one of our primary stress response hormones. Our adrenaline levels go up. And what that does is that we can run faster. Our brain can think clearer. You know, we pour sugar into our bloodstream so that we can actually use up that energy in order to fight or flight, right? This is all a good thing in the short term. And, and, and as we're doing that, we shut off processes like digestion or things like reproduction. Because when you are running from a lion, the last thing you want to do is either, you know, chill out and reproduce or, you know, stop for a snack. Right. You, so your body's very smart. It prioritizes what it needs to prioritize. The problem is, is in the modern world, it's flipped. Whereas instead of spending most of our day in a, rela in a, in a relaxed state, and just occasionally we go into stress states in order to get us, uh, you know, get us away from danger. Many of us are living our whole lives in fight or flight, so in the stress state, and and just literally having moments, if at all, of relaxation. And that means those processes that in the short term help us, in the long term they harm us. We're talking about type two diabetes and insulin resistance, right? So in the short term, 
it releases, the stress response releases sugar into your blood, right? That's a good thing in the short term, but you can already see how in the long term that's going to be a problem because we know that if your cortisol, which is our body's primary, well, one of our body's primary stress response hormones, if that is elevated for a long period of time, that causes your blood sugar to rise. It causes you to be insulin resistant. And, and that's something that I think is really, really important that people think about. And I can probably illustrate that with a case for you. But, you know, it's it's it, it's one of the things that doesn't get spoken about a lot with type 2 diabetes. And I'm finding more and more with patients that I'm tackling that. And in fact, let, let me tell you here about this, this, this chap I saw recently, a 52-year-old business guy. Um, now, it was really interesting because he had read some of my blogs on type 2 diabetes already and he had already made a lot of the dietary changes in fact he was really trying to go on a on a very aggressive low carb diet and he was trying to push his carbs lower and lower because he was getting frustrated that his sugar wasn't coming down any further so he rocks up at my door he's been waiting a few months to see me and then when i see him i go through his diet and just to put it in perspective he's a type 2 diabetic he was still on metformin, but he'd managed to come off his uh, glycoside, which is a sulfonylurea. Right. Okay, so just to give you a bit of background. Yep. I looked at his diet, and it, it was awesome. It was what you would typically, you know, it's what would typically be called a low-carb diet. It was it was done in a very healthy way. Ketogenic level, maybe? Of, sorry? A ketogenic level, maybe? Yeah. I mean, he wasn't measuring. I didn't measure it, but I would I would argue, yeah, he was probably on ketogenic diets. Uh, that would certainly be my guess. And, you know, at, at that point, you know, I really wasn't measuring ketones. He wasn't measuring ketones. He was right. doing what a lot of people had done, which is trying to empower himself on the Internet by reading blogs right. and putting it into practice. And it was working at first, but then it stopped. And that was incredibly frustrating for him. So he comes to see me. His blood sugar is still a little bit high. And he's like, look, doc, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to the gym twice a week. You know, I'm doing some strength training. I'm pushing my carbs lower and lower. You know, what's going on? What am I missing here? And I took this, this four-pillar approach with him. And I thought, well, this is quite interesting. His diet is frankly brilliant. You know, um, I think he's doing enough physical activity, but he is always working. He never switches off. Mm. He's a busy exec. He's working till late every night. His uh, stress levels are up and his sleep quality is down. And I said, look, I'm not convinced that actually this is now a dietary issue. I think you've made the changes with your diet, but I think you're going to get more bang for your buck by changing some of the other pillars. Now, yes. again, he was a bit skeptical, which is like, you know, come on, you know, diabetes, it's carbs, you know, that's all I've got to do. I said, no, no, you, you've done that stuff, right? You, you've already made a good change there. That's fantastic. But I explained to him how sleep deprivation, uh, sorry, how, how chronic stress which I thought he was suffering from, can actually drive insulin resistance. Could and you say that it's like a physical lifestyle manifestation of eating a whole plate of biscuits? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And again, sleep, we don't quite understand the biochemistry of how this happens yet, but we do know that when people are sleep deprived, they become more insulin resistant. And you know, some of your listeners may well have continuous uh, blood glucose monitors and a lot of them will comment that actually when they've been traveling or when they're really stressed or they've not oh, slept yeah. well their sugar levels are high and so we we kind of know this stuff it, we, there's there's enough science out there. there's enough personal anecdotes to go actually this is a real thing and so what i said to him was look 
I know you're, I know it's hard. You've got to work hard. And so we applied some of the principles in the book, which was, you know, uh, 15 minutes of me time every day. Now, that sounds such a soft intervention, Jimmy, right? It's like, why is this like qualified MD talking about 15 minutes of me time? But the point is, it's about scheduling in a bit of time where, you know, you're, you're by yourself, you don't have your phone or your computer on you, and you don't feel guilty about it, and you just literally chill. And for him, it was listening to music, right? There was something that we put into his diary. He would also switch off his tech one hour before bed. Mm. And I, 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 I sort of, we bargained together and we came up in clinic that he would commit to doing five minutes on a meditation app. I think he chose the app Calm. Uh, five minutes a day. You know, I said, look, let's make it simple and easy. And I said, look, you can probably ease up a little bit on your carbs because I thought he was really stressing out over how to get lower and lower and lower. Right. Now, I'm not saying I do this in every case, Jimmy, but this is what happened in this case. Literally, that's what he did. He came out to see me four to six weeks later, right? His sleep quality had gone up. He felt generally better about himself, about himself, and his sugar levels had come down significantly. And about three months later, we got him off the metformin, right? And I'm seeing this over and over again. That again, I didn't take this approach five years ago. I've learned to do this when I when I started seeing patients who really were cranking up their diet. They were getting their diet completely dialed in, right? Yet they were hitting a stumbling block. And I thought, you know. Can, do we just keep pushing, pushing, pushing on the diet? And in some cases you can, right? And I'm sure there's many cases out there where that approach can work. But if anybody is listening to this who feels, you know what, I, I, there's something about that that resonates with me, I'd encourage you to sort of, you know, have a think about taking this approach. Or if you've got friends or family or, if, you know, your mother, your father, someone who you think actually, you know, they're, they're, they're struggling, maybe they need this sort of rounded 360 degree approach. I think that this kind of approach in this book really works for a lot of people. Well, and, and Rangan, I think a lot of the problem is whenever people see a stall in their weight or see blood sugar, like your case study you, you mentioned there, uh, remaining elevated despite a perfect diet, though I get those kind of emails daily and people always say, what am I doing wrong? Do I need do I need to lower my carbs more? Do I need to switch diets? Keto isn't working for me. Paleo isn't working for me. You know, and they say these things again and again and again. And I'm going, OK, tell me a little bit about your your life. And almost invariably that, oh, I'm not sleeping very well. The kids screaming in the middle of the night. And there you go work on that. Or I'm stressed out. I've got, uh, you know, I'm working three jobs trying to make ends meet, blah, blah, blah. And there you go. That's the source. So I, I love it that you're putting a spotlight on this because this is something that I think is the missing link for so many people. Yeah, it's, it's a big problem. And the reason, Jimmy, I stuck to these four, uh, these four big areas is because you know, I've recognized being in the media for a few years, you know, communicating with um, lots of people, the public, but also my patients. I've realized that actually to, to get a message across, you need to try and keep it, you know, you, t- you need to treat people with respect, but you need to try and keep things simple. Yeah. And if I'd made it seven pillars or eight pillars, right, suddenly it gets a bit more complicated. And what I have seen both with the public here in the UK, but also with the, the doctors that I'm training, People love this four pillar framework because it's simple enough to get your head around. And the, the, the one ask I would have of 
every person listening to this right now, and even if you, Jimmy, potentially, it's like, you know, once this is over, have a listen, have a, have a think about those four pillars, food, movement, sleep, and relaxation, and ask yourself, which pillar do you need the most work in? Because most of us intuitively know that. For me, at the moment, it's relaxation. I am struggling to, you know, <laughs> the irony is I'm struggling to find time to relax. And Welcome I, to being a book author, my friend. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The irony of promoting a health book is that you- It's not healthy. <laughs> you trash your health at the same time. But, you know, I, I will admit to struggling with that pillar. And I yes. know my, my diet and movement- tends to be pretty dialed in now. And I've worked hard on that, on that for, you know, the last five years. I, I, was, I struggled five, six years ago, but I've, I've gone through those, you know, those behavioral learnings and those changes. But I know when I get under pressure, it's my relaxation that goes off. Um, not so much sleep. Two years ago, I made a big change and I'm pretty good. You know, I will switch off at a certain point in the evening, even if my workload is going through the roof. You know, not always, but generally speaking, I will have a shut off time and, and then I will switch my phone off on my computer. And I'm like, right, I'm going to wind down now for the next hour and do other stuff, because if I don't sleep well tonight, suddenly tomorrow morning, everything is worse. You know, not only not only that, but then all the good diet dietary choices I want to make are much harder the day after you've not slept well. You know, you don't crave lots of brightly colored vegetables the, the, the morning after you've not slept well, do you? <laughs> No, it's just the carbs. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing, Jimmy, about the, the approach that I'm taking is that, is that I'm trying to take the pressure off people and say, look, guys, it's pretty hard sometimes to have the perfect diet or the perfect gym routine, right? And this, my there's plenty of great books out there, right? I'm not dissing them at all, but I'm saying my book, I think, is a little bit different. I'm trying to say, guys, look, take the pressure off yourself. Maybe your diet is good enough. If your diet is good enough, you may find more benefit from dealing with another factor, um, you know, dealing with, you know, strength training, for example, you know, strength training is something that I'm, I'm sure you've had people on talk about this before. Strength training is so undervalued. When we talk about fitness, we talk about movement, you know, as a society, we're not talking enough about strength training. and We know it's critical, you know, for metabolic problems. You know, your lean muscle mass plays a huge role. Right. So with my diabetic patients, I'm always talking to them about strength uh, and resistance training. And, you know, I've, I've, I've created this thing called a five-minute kitchen workout that I've got 20-year-old patients doing. I've got a 70-year-old patients doing. And that came from one of my patients a few years ago when I was telling them about the importance of strength training. They came back four weeks later. And I said, you know, how are you getting on? And they said, you know what, Doc, you have not a time, you know, the gym's too expensive. It's not on the way back from work. And, you know, I, I, I think I'm slightly unusual as a doctor because I never really thought, oh, why are they not following my advice? My, my approach then was, okay, I'm clearly not giving them good enough advice in a context that means something to them, you know, around their own lifestyle. So I thought I've got to do a better job. So literally in that moment, I remember taking my jacket off you know, jumping down on the floor and then going through this kind of strength workout with them wow. in my clinic room to teach them. And, you know, I've done do this. That? With, <laughs> hey, you do, once you, once you tap into why you became a doctor in the first place, yes. right? I love science, right? I love the research papers, but I'm also interested in what works in real life, right? And it's not always the same thing. And, you know, I don't mean that to denigrate the science. I really don't. I just think science and research helps guide me, but it doesn't absolutely, you know, it doesn't dictate what I do because I've got to interpret 
what is relevant for that particular person? What is his income level? What is his job like? What is his stress level like? You know, is this going to fit in with him? You know, this guy can't afford a personal trainer. He, frankly, he's not going to attend a gym because it, it's just too inconvenient. I may be able to motivate him for two weeks, but then he'll fall off the wagon. What about if I actually find him a workout that he could do in his house, doesn't cost any money, doesn't need any equipment, he doesn't even need to get changed, Right that maybe I've got a shot then. And that's what people love about this kitchen workout is that anybody can do it. And, you know, I've got patients where I've said, guys, look, can you give me five minutes twice a week? They're like, is that all, doc? I'm like, yeah, that's all I want from you. Yeah, all right, yeah, yeah, fine. I'll give you five minutes twice a week. And what they do, they end up doing that kitchen workout that I detail in my book twice a week. And then they feel good. They feel motivated. And then suddenly that becomes a 10 minute strength workout six times a week. So suddenly instead of, you know, they won't go to the gym, but by make, by setting the bar low, right, they meet that, that helps increase motivation. You feel good about yourself. Then you're like, God, I'm going to do this more and more. And, you know, Hey, this five minute kitchen workout, I've been around the UK for the last three months promoting this book. I knock that out in a hotel room in the morning, often in the evening. I think I saw you on uh, Instagram or somewhere, Facebook, doing that workout. <laughs> I, I did it. Hey, I did it. I think you might have seen it. I was at a, uh, I was doing a BBC radio interview. Yes. And uh, I challenged the DJ to do it with me. So I think someone <laughs> put it on Instagram. And, yes. Oh, wow. and, and I think she started doing it in her own life. And so, you know, it's about making this stuff accessible for people. A lot of people are thinking that, Oh, health's too hard. And it is hard, right? It's hard in the sense that the, the modern living environment doesn't make it easy. But but this book is, is full of hacks. And you don't have to do everything I ask, right? The whole point about this book is saying, if you don't like one of my chapters, right, which is a recommendation, don't do it, right? I'm not expecting everyone to do, you know, each pillar, so each, each uh, of these four core pillars has five chapters and each chapter is a recommendation, Right. And I say recommendation, not a prescription. So I don't actually tell my patients what to do because I found that, you know, you'll do what someone else tells you to do for a few weeks. Right. But then after a while, if you're not invested in it, if you don't see the point in it, you're going to stop doing it. So I'm like, guys, there's five chapters in each pillar. That means there's 20 recommendations. I don't think anyone's going to do all 20 in the, in the, in the 21st century. I think it's going to be too difficult, but most of my patients need to do about two or three in each pillar. Mm. So that's why I take the pressure off people. So if you don't like one of my recommendations, you think I'm not going to do that. It doesn't fit with my life. Don't do it. Choose something else that you do want to do because that's the approach that I want to take to get more people healthy. And, you know, my, my goal with this book is to transform the health of as many people as possible. And certainly from the response in the UK, it's certainly doing that. So, you know, Jimmy, I really you know, appreciate you, you taking the time to actually have me on and talk to you about it. Hey, it's my pleasure. And like I said, you are basically articulating a lot of the things that I've snuck into my work in the past few years as well. I think more and more of us that have been in the nutritional health space, we realize, okay, people are tending to get that, don't eat processed food, uh, cut out sugar, uh, eat more nourishing foods that have micronutrition in them. But the missing link for a lot of people is getting that stress under control, moving more, 
and sleep. And so thank you for adding all of that to our lexicon now. And I'm thinking five years from now, Rangan, we're going to have all of that under control. And then we focus on like the gut microbiome and why we need to pay more attention. It, you, you should pay more attention to it now, by the way, if you're listening to this. But down the road, you know, that'll be kind of the next four pillars. Well, it will. Uh, but, but Jimmy, the gut, the gut microbiome plays a huge feature in this book because- yes. You know, funnily enough, those four pillars actually directly impacts the microbiome. And I That's sort of, right. there's there's lots of uh, interconnectivity in this book. And I'm always cross-referencing the pillars and going, yeah, but do you remember in the food pillar when we did this and that changes <laughs> your gut bugs? Well, actually, you know what? In the sleep pillar, when you do this, that also does that. And so it's also to help that, the, you know, it's to help Joe Public understand Oh wow, that's how it's all connected. And right. so th- th- you know, one of the things that makes me incredibly happy, Jimmy, is that there's hundreds of doctors now, medical doctors in the UK and nutritionists, who are prescribing this book to their patients or, wow. or signposting their patients to this book and saying, "Look, I'm going to go through this sort of you know basic stuff with you in the consultation, but go and get this book, and actually then you know that's going to help you put this into practice." And that's probably one of the nicest. You know, compliments that I can get as a medical doctor is that my colleagues are using this book with their patients. Well, and as an author, that's just so gratifying. I've had a lot of doctors say that instead of trying to explain what ketogenic diets are, here, read Keto Clarity. And so it's it's kind of a cool thing when you see that that happens. And wow, that's that's the book I wrote. <laughs> so it's pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, exactly, Jimmy. And now I've, I've now joined you in the, the realms of being an author. And it's an incredible feeling because, you know, it's amazing the sort of impact that that can have on people. So, yeah. you know, yeah. And you've been doing such great work, Jimmy, for years now. Thank you. And you're going to find that now that you've written one and this kind of the the publicity of this one goes uh, across UK and then into the US and you're going to find, ooh, what else can I talk about? <laughs> maybe, yeah, exactly. Maybe my my brain's already going away. At that. It's already ticking away at that as we speak. Ah, stay tuned, you guys. His name, Dr. Rangan Chatterjee. Again, check him out uh, and all the work that he's doing with his brand new book, how to Make Disease Disappear. It's now available in the U.S. Uh, we'll have a link to the Amazon link at the show notes section at theliveandlowcarbshow.com. He does have a website, drchatterjee.com. That's D-R-C-H-A-T-T-E-R-J-E-E.com. He also, uh, we talked about in his bio, uh, hosts a TV show, BBC One TV show called Doctor in the House. Are those available to watch on YouTube or somewhere for Americans to watch? Yeah, you know, it, it's gone to 70 countries around the world, but it hasn't gone to the US yet. But I have, uh, you know, that they, they are there on YouTube and on my own YouTube channel. So if you just search YouTube Dr. Chatterjee, I've got two um, Doctor in the House playlists where you can see some of the episodes from season nice. one, season two. You can see the type 2 diabetes reversal. You can see anxiety, panic attacks getting better by changing diets and, and improving sleep and fibromyalgia and all kinds of other stuff. It's all there so people can check it out. And, uh, you know, maybe we can put the link to that on the show notes as well. Yeah. Jimmy. And they, they could throw it on BBC America. They throw a bunch of Star Trek Next Generation episodes. My wife loves that as a Star Trek fan. But like in the middle of the day, play Doctor in the House Marathon. It'd be kind of fun to see that. Yeah, that'd be great. And then he has a new podcast. If you didn't get sick of hearing him today on the Living La Vida Low Carb Show, he does a, an entire podcast of his own. And I love the title of this, Rangan. Feel Better, Live more, one of the most talked about health podcasts in the UK. So definitely go find that. I'm assuming it's on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, yeah, all the usual everywhere. places. Usual places, man. It's everywhere. Great. 
Well, Rangan, thanks so much for joining us here today on the Live and La Vida Low Carb Show. Thanks, Jimmy. Coming up next time on the Live and La Vida Low Carb Show, we'll have the author of a book entitled Genius Foods, his name, Max Lugavere. Get show notes for today's episode at theliveinlowcarbshow.com. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review at iTunes. Thanks for listening to the Live in La Vida Low Carb Show. We'll see you next time. Disc of Light.